sun's dropping on my face. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, it's official. We are in the throes of fall, and I couldn't be happier. I love this type of weather. 55 degrees, crisp, chill in the air. I love heavy clothes like sweaters, hoodies, things like that, so I get really excited when I get to break them out. And I'm so glad we're past that September phase where it's like 50 degrees in the morning, and then by 3 o'clock the sun is like, I'm still here, people! And it goes up to 75 and you have to change back into a t-shirt. But I've realized in the past couple of years that I have a high tolerance for cold weather. Now, I don't want to get into global warming and all that stuff, but the winters have been especially brutal the past couple of years, especially if you live in the Northeast. I have never worn so many layers as I have in December, January, and February. But I'm not complaining. I would rather put clothes on than have to take them off. Because at some point, if it's so hot and you're down to a bathing suit, there's really not much more you can do. If the weather outside is 30 degrees, no wind, I am so good with that. I can deal with that. I don't even have to layer up. But if you're walking in Manhattan and it's a windy day, they have those skyscrapers and those streets become a wind tunnel. And by the time I get to work, I look fairly unpleasant. My hair is a complete mess and I don't know how it happens, but fluids are coming out of my nose, yet my lips are completely dry. That result seems to be the antithesis of each other. But I still love the cold. I know for a long time I did want to go out to the West Coast. I'm just built for the winter, as long as I don't have to go out in it. I remember there was a huge snowstorm on Long Island. I was working for AMC Networks at the time, and I had to drive into the office because they didn't have a phone chain that said, don't go into work today. But I'm telling you, on the drive up, I spun out three times. And I almost got into an argument with a person because my car was spinning its wheels and this a whoopsie was behind me, beeping his horns. And for some reason, I had a bat in the car at the time. I don't know why. I honestly have no idea why. And I'm telling you, I was very close to brandishing the bat like I'm Sting in WCW. But <laughs> I made it up there safe and sound and no one was in the office. Talk about making an effort for nothing. So now that I'll be working from home through uh, some of the winter, I'm actually looking forward to it. Mother Nature, throw down 20 feet of snow. It's all good with me. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It. Two stars, Watch at Your Own Risk. Three stars, Standard Fair. Four stars, Worth Checking Out. And five stars, Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. These are my ruminations and observations of the pilot episode for... 
Downton Abbey from 2010. Now, I want to explain why I haven't seen this series yet. I watch a lot of British television, so this would seem to be right down my alley. In fact, people who know me talk to me about it like I've seen it. They just assume. But I've never been a big fan of period pieces. Now, I know that term means a movie that takes place within a past time period. Like, I don't consider Greece a period piece, even though technically it is. But when I was growing up, I always associated that with costume dramas, where they have hoity-toity accents, wear corsets, those big bell-shaped dresses. That's what that meant to me. But this series is so critically acclaimed and too many people have sung its praises that I needed to give it a shot. The series was created by Julian Fellows, who won the Best Writing Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen Academy Award for Gosford Park. He wrote the book for one of my favorite Broadway musicals, School of Rock. Not embarrassed to say that I saw it probably five to eight times, including Closing Night. He wrote the script for the first episode. The pilot was directed by Brian Percival, for which he won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Directing for a miniseries, movie, or dramatic special. He also helmed the book Thief based off the novel of the same name. Here's a quote without context. Heavens, girl, you're building a fire, not inventing it. We're introduced to the aristocratic Crawley family, headed by Robert, 7th Earl of Grantham, and Cora, Countess of Grantham. They are portrayed by Hugh Bonneville, who is in Notting Hill, Mansford Park, and Paddington, and Elizabeth McGovern, known for Ordinary People, Once Upon a Time in America, and was nominated for an Academy Award for Ragtime in 1982. They have three daughters, Mary, Sybil, and Edith, played by Michelle Dockery, Jessica Brown Findlay, and Laura Carmichael, respectively. It's April 1912. The sinking of the Titanic has brought turmoil to the Crawley family. On board were James Crawley and his only son Patrick, who is in line as heirs to the estate. They are visited by Violet Crawley, Dowager Countess of Grantham, performed by Dame Maggie Smith of Gosford Park, Hook, and Sister Act fame. She won two Primetime Emmy Awards for this role and two Oscars for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for California Suite and Best Actress in a Leading Role for The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. So Violet and Cora discuss the situation rather tersely at first. We learn that Violet's late husband wanted to protect Downton Abbey and forced Cora to sign over her fortune, tying it with the estate, with the expectation that she would have a son who would become the heir. Since Robert and Cora had three daughters, the law of the land stated that it was forbidden to have a female heir, so it got passed down to Patrick Crawley, who would marry their eldest daughter Mary. Yes, we have cousins marrying each other. Very apropos of the Brits. When Patrick and Mary had a grandson, he would have been the next heir and entitled to the estate. But with his demise, Downton Abbey and Cora's fortune is set to be inherited by a distant third cousin. Damn that Titanic. Ruin the relationship of Patrick and Mary and Jack and Rose. Violet and Cora decide that there's only one solution. The entail must be smashed in its entirety and Mary recognized as heiress of all. It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that Downton Abbey is a beautifully produced series. It's so visually appealing. Every corner of the estate is immaculately designed and decorated. In the dining room, there's an oil painting that's at least 20 feet tall. I'm not sure I've ever watched a more elegant series. The acting is really compelling. It's a very dialogue-heavy episode, and I'm only assuming that's how the rest of the series is. But it was never dull. I mean, if you need some action to happen every 10 minutes, this isn't your show. There are a lot of characters, and I was worried I wouldn't be able to keep it straight. The only person I immediately knew was Mrs. Padmore, because her name was said at least 20 times within a three-minute period. 
I've always been a fan of strong female characters, and this show is loaded with them. From Cora to Violet to Mary. They're in control, they know what they want. Nice to see representation of well-rounded, intelligent, and determined characters. While I'm intrigued by the quote-unquote upstairs storyline with the family, I'm more charmed and invested in the quote-unquote downstairs characters of the staff. They're more relatable to us average folk, and you get a better sense of their personalities because they're not concerned per se with keeping up appearances. Now for a little trivial trivia. There was a scene where one of the staff was ironing the paper. I'd never heard of that practice before, but it's explained later that it dries the ink so the Lord's hands aren't smudged. I think I gotta hire me one of those people. Alphonse! Alphonse! Write up an ad for me! The cinematography was captured by David Katznelson, whose filmography includes the Hulu series 112263 based on the Stephen King novel. He won a Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Cinematography for a miniseries or movie for the episode I've reviewed. It's beautifully shot, nothing fancy, captures the drama by allowing the actors and the atmosphere to be the main focus. It was edited by John Wilson, who worked on Before You Go, The Book Thief, and a movie everyone should see, Billy Elliot. The score was composed by John Lunn, who wrote the music for The Last Kingdom, Belgravia, Grantchester, The White Princess, basically any period drama produced in England. The runtime was one hour and seven minutes, with episodes running anywhere from 47 to 93 minutes. It won 15 Primetime Emmys and was nominated for over 275 industry awards. Ultimately, the pilot episode comes down to Morse Code, Devil's Handiwork, Complication, Snuff Boxes, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, Vapors, and Fishing Without Bait. I give it four and a half out of five stars. I really enjoyed it. This could change my mind on other period pieces. I'm definitely going to continue watching and give updates in later editions of the podcast. The series was on for six seasons, 52 episodes from 2010 to 2015. A feature-length movie was released in theaters in 2019 with a sequel to follow in 2022. If you've seen Downton Abbey and have opinions on the series, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Dumb. Moving right along, each episode I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. This could be my most straightforward video. It's animals in snow. There really isn't much more for me to say about it. It's animals in snow. I guess the reason why I find it so amusing is because some of these animals are discovering snow for the first time. And it's always fun, whether it's an animal or a child, to see their reaction to something they've never experienced before. So when a dog first steps in snow and goes, ooh, what, what is this? It's, it's not a solid, but it, it's not a liquid, but my paws are still wet. What the hell is this? So I think if I had one of the Men in Black mind erasers, I'd probably do that for a couple of things, like what you would want to experience for the first time again. And of course I'd use it for some silly things, like I'd want to experience watching Jurassic Park or Jaws again for the first time. Or South Park Bigger Longer Uncut. Because that was the best theater experience I've ever had seeing a movie. The crowd was into it, there was laughter all over, when Cartman started to sing Kyle's Mom's a Bit, whoopsie, the whole audience started clapping along. 
And when he went around the world and showed us it might sound a little bit something like this, I mean, I lost it. Absolutely lost it. So if I could relive that memory again, that would be amazing. So yeah, if you could experience something for the first time, keep it clean, people. What would you choose? Hit me up on Facebook and Twitter and let me know. But for your viewing pleasure, Animals in Snow. The video is available in the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about QI. Created by John Lloyd, a BAFTA Television Award winner who is a producer on Black Adder. The comedy panel show was hosted by Stephen Fry from Series A through M, and the role was taken over by Sandy Togsby starting with Series N. There are three rotating guests, alongside regular Alan Davies of Jonathan Creek fame. Each episode, the host poses a series of questions related to a theme, and the guests provide answers for points, but the objective is to be interesting or quite interesting, more than to be right. The questions can be difficult and, if you had an American education, near impossible. What I find most fascinating are the things that were taught to us as common knowledge being proven completely and utterly wrong, like Christopher Columbus discovering America. When a panelist gives one of these obvious but incorrect answers, a klaxon sounds and that exact answer flashes on the board. That's an indicator that the writers predicted what you were going to say. You lose points when you're that predictable. Though it is a buzzkill when a guest comes on with actual knowledge of a subject, that's not the purpose of the series. The charm is the interaction between the guests, watching them play off each other, try to outdo each other, and the further of a tangent they go down, the funnier it usually is. Memorable guests include Sean Locke, Bill Bailey, Ronnie Ancona, Phil Jupitus, David Mitchell, Ashling B, Dara O'Brien, Johnny Vegas, Roisin Conate, and Rob Bryden. Some famous actors have made an appearance, including David Tennant, Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Thompson, and Hugh Laurie. I'm a big fan of Stephen Fry. I think he's one of the smartest men out there. He was in a series called A Bit of Fry and Laurie with Hugh Laurie, who is his best friend. I just think he's brilliant. I could listen to him talk for hours on any subject. I mentioned in a previous podcast that he did an hour interview with Craig Ferguson on The Late Late Show, and it was just fascinating. It was one of the first comedy panel shows that I got into and really obsessed with. I'm surprised that this type of format hasn't caught on in the U.S. because we have plenty of stand-up comedians who would be perfect for this type of show. QI has been on for 19 seasons, 272 episodes since 2003, and it airs on BBC Two. Episodes can be found streaming and on YouTube. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You could follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I plan on having interactive elements, so follow, subscribe, and like for all the latest news, updates, and polls. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. The series was created by Julian Fellows, who won the Best Writing Screenplay Writing Directing Writing Something. <laughs>
What are the words coming out of my mouth? They are visited by Violet Crawley, Dowager Countess. I've never said half these words in my life. The pilot was directed by Brian Percival, for which he won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Directing for a Movie Series. A Movie Series? I did that once before.